are listening to a podcast from The National. Mr. Zarif, do you recognize this? You should. It's yours. That's Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu brandishing the remnants of an Iranian drone shot down by the Israeli military last week. He's addressing the Iranian Foreign Minister, Ahmed Zarif, who sat right in front of him at the Munich Security Conference. You can take back with you a message to the tyrants of Tehran. Do not test Israel's resolve. This was the most serious military engagement between the two countries since the start of the Syria war. It escalated quickly. After the drone was shot down, Israel retaliated by launching an airstrike in Syria. Iran responded and shot down an Israeli F-16 fighter jet. That was the first Israeli plane to go down in more than 35 years, and it was a huge blow to the Air Force's aura of invincibility. For a moment, full-scale war felt imminent. But Russia got involved, and so did foreign actors engaged in Syria. War was averted for now. This is Beyond the Headlines. I am Nasr al-Wesmi, and this week we'll be discussing the war of words that could blow into more between Iran and Israel. We'll get both sides of the conflict and see how this could spill into an escalated military engagement. The Nationals' London bureau chief, Damien McElroy, covered the Munich talks last week. He reported on Netanyahu's speech. This is what he had to say about the Premier's tone and how the conference was used to air out grievances over the conflict in Syria. Munich was a venue for a lot of pent-up frustrations between various sides, and um, Netanyahu, as someone said at the time, um, had found a new prop. So having had the conflagration on the borders um, a few days earlier, he came with the piece of a drone that had been shot down. He said this was an Iranian drone. Um, he was um, standing in front of an audience, which included a dozen scores of people who are either quite high-ranking or very high-ranking security officials and uh, people who used to be high-ranking security officials and who are still various, very involved in various aspects of international affairs. So there's a very sophisticated audience. Um, also in the front row was um, the Iranian Foreign Minister Zarif. And um, with a dramatic flourish, Mr. Netanyahu took a, this piece of drone and flashed it in front of him and essentially confronted him and said, this is yours, uh, you should recognize it, and um, don't try and test us, otherwise you will feel the consequences. Um Zarif then took to the stage, and he basically said that was um, a circus act, what Mr. Netanyahu had done. Um, and he said that the mask had slipped of Israeli invincibility. So, you know, this is very naked language. This is very confrontational language, as you said. Um, and it really demonstrates how uh, up close both sides are and how large the stakes have become and how volatile the situation can be and could be. I mean, how does, what, as you said, it's a lot of posturing, but how does 
what he said translate into action? Are we seeing any new developments since? The situation in Syria is uh, the important factor here. So, yes, every day you see um, new developments in, in the Syria conflict, and um, the focus of those developments is constantly shifting. So, at the moment, the focus, um, or since Mr. Netanyahu's speech and um, the Iranian comments, um, you know, the focus is, has quickly shifted to eastern Ghouta, it's shifted, shifted to Afrin, um, and the Turkish situation, you know, there was equally strong and, and um, aggressive language um, with the Turkish government and um, how it was basically saying to the Americans and to others that it was going to sort out the situation in um, those Kurdish and those Syrian uh, Kurdish enclaves, and um, you know we 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 constantly try and follow this. We see how Russia is trying to establish its supremacy over the overall peace outcome in um, in Syria. But the the big feeling in the room, I think, is that the um, Israelis had the luxury of allowing all that uh, development in Syria for a few years to be something that was between lots of different parties who were all essentially fighting each other and they didn't have a focus on Israel. And so they, um, you know, Israel could go in and only act when it saw something that was really physically against its interests, such as some sort of transfer of technology. Now Israel recognizes that actually positions are being established in Syria and it will um, need to be much more involved, which adds a whole new di- dimension to this conflict. And it's something, you know, that will play out over days, but it'll also play out over weeks and it'll play out over months. Netanyahu is currently being investigated over bribery charges. Police recommend to charge uh, the Israeli prime minister with two counts of bribery. He is clearly under an immense amount of pressure abroad, obviously, but also at home. Do you think that factors at all uh, in his policies, in his demeanor? Any political leader who is under pressure um, in the terms that he is under pressure, in terms of you know prosecutors being involved, allegations of... Um, influence allegations that he um, is living a lifestyle that is beyond his official salary um, will, of course, um, seek to raise themselves above the immediate problems. So you have a a very um, toxic situation domestically for him. I would just say that in terms of Netanyahu being a veteran, in terms of how he has always tried to project his politics in terms of his willingness to use force, um, there is nothing unexpected about what he is doing, you know, with with Syria, with Lebanon. Um, He is always prepared to be ruthless. He's also always prepared to establish his own, um, uh, you know, zone of safety for Israel, if you like. And that is his ultimate focus. So... um, in some senses, it really doesn't help, and it creates a pressure that is being brought to bear on this situation. But the domestic political situation is just one factor in a wider set of events that probably would be taking place anyway. 
Many expected Israel to react to Iran, but they also uh, were expecting a message delivered to the states. Uh, it seemed they have a lot to say about the power vacuum left in the region uh, and Washington's new policy against nation building. I mean, what is Israel's uh, approach to that? Uh, I think they have the luxury of um, waiting to see what the U.S. is uh, announcing, what it is planned to do, whether there will be a White House, um, uh, you know, initiative that comes. The um, messaging that seemed to be coming out from various delegations in Munich was that this was not, a, you know, this would still be quite some time away before any kind of formal um, peace initiative um, would come forward. And so the pressure is not um, greatly on Israel. Israel um, can, you know, has the space essentially to look to these other more practical issues of, uh, as I say, things like, you know, whether there's there's missiles or drones um, in, in its immediate vicinity that might... Um, come into its space. So in in some senses, you know, the 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 fact that the US lacks focus is sort of takes the pressure off um the Israeli government. And otherwise um I think, you know, strategically they want they want to see um a situation where their uh, people who are trying to destabilize the Middle East are being faced down and that is something that the White House is um, is committed to, so um, they retain some degree of hope that, that that will be the trend of the next three and a half years or three years of the Trump administration. The Israeli Prime Minister said that his country will act against Iran. Uh, it also called them the world's greatest threat. Ultimately, is it in, is it in Israel's interest to engage in a direct conflict with Iran? Well, we've seen this rodeo before, haven't we? We've seen um, the whole build-up in the early part of Obama's presidency where there was essentially um, a great effort by Washington to put in place something that would mean Israel would not directly or unilaterally attack Iran. Um, now, that kind of setup that still exists. Um, will Israel um, act outside of that? At the moment, I think that would be the product of a long pressure game. And I think if that is the case, then we're probably in the very early stages of that. And we have to see a hell of a lot more diplomacy, of more um, skirmishing, if you like, and then probably more direct diplomatic action before we would get to that point. Um, you know, there is a um, standstill on nuclear activity, so the um, in terms of Israel directly attacking an Iranian threat, that would have to be much more focused on um, what Iran is sending to places like Syria and Lebanon. And again, I think, you know, we wait to see what happens in May when... Um, uh, President Trump expects to have more sanctions against Iran because, um, at the very least, that may provide an alternative to scrapping the nuclear deal, or indeed, or if he decides that the U.S. will actually withdraw from it, 
and then, you know, we'll be in a whole new ballgame. Regardless of the credibility behind Netanyahu's claims, it is no secret Iran is trying to push its interests in the region through limited direct military engagement. It uses its proxies far more effectively than delving into modern warfare. To shed light on how Iran, Israel, and the wider region is conducting operations in a precarious situation in Syria, I am joined by Nezanin Ansari, the managing editor of Kehan London, who has written for the National on Iranian Issues. She had this to say about how Syria has become, unfortunately, the battleground where countries in the region engage in conflict. Syria has become a, a territory for proxy war between uh, Iran and Israel. Certainly, Israel uh, believes that uh, uh, Iran is trying to make Syria into a new front uh, between Israel, Hezbollah, and Iran. And uh, that has, they, uh, in the Israeli perception, uh, that that is the aim. Since the start of the revolution, Iran, uh, the Islamic Republic has not uh, hit the fact that it uh, views Israel as an enemy uh, uh, to be taken down. And uh, its military policy, its military strategy, has been to confront uh, the, not only the United States, but Israel. Uh, so this, uh, what we see in Syria, is uh, unfortunately has become uh, a proxy war, uh, not only between Iran and Israel, but it has the potential uh, to, uh, to be the start of a regional uh, confrontation. Uh, and uh, the situation is uh, very dangerous also for uh, Russia, who has tried to uh, keep a balance between its relations uh, with the Islamic Republic and that uh, of uh, uh, Israel. For example, Israel has been targeting convoys, uh, sending aid and assistance and uh, weaponry to Hezbollah, Iranian convoys. And uh, um, so uh, Russia has remained silent uh, and has, in a way, has uh, turned a blind eye uh, to these attacks. But at the end of the day, uh, it's a very precarious situation uh, for, for the Russians. And indeed, uh, uh, only in a few days ago, the foreign minister of Russia, uh, Sergei Lavrov, uh, chided and uh, criticized uh, Qasem Soleimani, the uh, uh, Islamic Revolutionary Guards Corps commander of the Quds Brigade, for his comments about uh, destroying Israel. You talked about Iran's influence in the region. Uh, does it have a policy of expansionism? Why are they so heavily involved in Syria? Uh, what interests does that serve? Um, well, if you look at the geographic uh, map of Syria, it, uh, it uh, actually uh, provides, uh, uh, provides uh, a route to Israel. And therefore, it's a strategic, uh, military strategic uh, ambition of uh, Iran to keep uh, Israel uh, on its toes uh, and uh, certainly through Iraq, to Syria, uh, they can easily access Israel, as they did 
with their uh, drone uh, this uh, in the past few days, uh, a drone that was uh, shot down by the Israelis. So, through that corridor, does that mean that Iran is interested in a war with Israel, a full-on engagement? Does this uh, serve their interests as they are constantly pushing a very aggressive rhetoric against the country? I don't think the Islamic Republic is looking for a war. But in a sense, I mean, when we're talking about a war, we're talking about a conventional war. Um, Certainly, they do not want uh, for it to get to that stage. Uh, but their strategy has always been um, to to use militias, to use uh, uh, their allies, uh, such, uh, such as Hezbollah, to be able to, and uh, Afghanis, uh, that we know that they had recruited uh, uh, Afghani uh, Shiites to fight in Syria. So they have done it in a very unconventional way. Uh, and I don't think it is their intention uh, to... Uh, to have a full-fledged uh, uh, war, unless, unless I think it might, it, the scenario might work in the case that they might feel uh, uh, an existential threat inside Iran, and as a means to uh, unite uh, the population, they might uh, opt for a war. But at the moment, that is a very unlikely uh, prospect at the moment. But they, they have. In the past, since the revolution uh, in Iran, they have used uh, groups and militias uh, to to do their fighting on their behalf. We touched on this earlier. Iran supports Hezbollah. Hezbollah is in Lebanon, conducting politics and being a part of the government. But there, it's somehow viewed in a different light to their presence in Syria. Why is there such a divergence between how the group is viewed in Syria and how it's viewed in Lebanon? Uh, it has to do, the reason uh, the Hezbollah in, uh, is viewed differently in Syria than in Lebanon is that uh, uh, it's the nature of uh, the, uh, the states, both in Lebanon and Syria, for one. And secondly, um, Hezbollah has been in Lebanon, is part of the, it has become part of the political process for a very long time, since the um, since the beginning of the revolution, they established Hezbollah, they, the Islamic Republic established Hezbollah uh, in, uh, in Lebanon. It funneled, uh, it still does, funnels millions of dollars uh, for, uh, for its uh, continuation of whether it is social work or actually uh, military uh, units. Uh, and, uh, but in Syria... Uh, it is only the Hezbollah that is at the fighting force. Whereas in Lebanon, you you see Hezbollah politicians. They you see Hezbollah as part of the political process. You see Hezbollah as part of as being part of the social fabric of Lebanon. So uh, this is the cause for the divergence of views between the Hezbollah uh, in Lebanon and Hezbollah in Syria. How does Russia play into this uh, as they look to expand their influence in the Middle East? What's their relationship with Iran? Well, Russia is a neighbor of Iran, and uh, Russia has always uh, figured, uh, was a player uh, during the history of Iran. But let's not forget that um, after World War II, Russia annexed 
uh, uh, part of the Azerbaijan, which is part of Iran. Um, at the moment, uh, Russia, for Russia, Iran uh, provides uh, an ally. Uh, we saw, like in uh, 2009, uh, when there were uh, the disturbed, the 2009 Green Movement in Iran. It was the Russian advisors that had been that had experienced the Velvet Revolutions in the newly emerged uh, countries such as. Uh, Poland and uh, Hungary and elsewhere, um, they they were sent off to Iran. They were sent to Iran to help the Islamic Republic, to help uh, the government of uh, uh, Iran to battle the uh, the Green Movement. Uh, in Syria, Russian intervention in Syria does not include a heavy presence, thanks to the presence of Hezbollah fighters and uh, the uh, Iranian advisors and uh, Afghan militias and uh, uh, others. Uh, but at the same time, uh, Russia is keeping its door open to Israel. It is uh, turning a, also a blind eye to Israeli attacks uh, on the convoys carrying arms to Hezbollah. Uh, no one wants a, a full frontal war outside uh, Syria together. Mm. But inside Syria, they have destroyed the country. And uh, it seems uh, it's very important for the Russians to keep the balance going. And as uh, we have uh, seen in the uh, past week, uh, it has been a very difficult balance to maintain. You can find this and all the other national podcasts such as Extra Time and Business Extra on Apple Podcasts or your favorite app. I've been your host, Nasr al-Wesmi. Thank you for listening and goodbye.